0: A word about this morning's scripture reading and message. Uh, we have been on a journey. It was a three week journey originally, a three week journey to look at those first three verses in Paul's letter to the church in Rome that come in the 12th chapter. Verse 1 was our first week. Verse 2 was our second week. And verse 3 and a little bit more all the way to verse 8 was our third week. And that was going to be it. Uh, We were going to stop there and then move on. But that verse 1 called for us to look at the mercy of God, to look at what God has done for us to look at the grace that God has given to us, and then to, to respond accordingly, to, to change or to present ourselves, as, as Paul puts it, as a living sacrifice. He uses this worshipful imagery that was present in his day, a sacrificial imagery, and instead of a, a dead animal being, an animal being sacrificed, He gives the imagery of ourselves, sacrificing ourselves for God, but that yet we're still alive, and now we live for God, that our very lives become a living out response of gratitude. That second week was calling for us to change to no longer allow the world and the realities around us to shape us, but rather to allow God to begin to shape us. And that came with a, a change of thinking, a, a, a renewing of our minds, that we were going to be transformed and changed to think about God's will and no longer about ours. Last week, the third week, was, was talking about how that thinking expands and, and, and going into some of the nuances of what Paul has in mind, of what it looks like to be a Christian, to, to live in the grace and the mercy of God, to be changed and ever-changing. And now, how does that expand and look? And we talked about an image almost like an acorn that has so much power and energy that then grows and expands to become a, an enormous tree. And, and we were going to stop there, but and, and there was a reason we were going to stop there, and that is because Paul goes on in chapter 12, but he goes on with this extensive list from verses 9 to 21, and a very extensive list in which there are just a whole bunch of what it could look like, all these different layers. And and we're going we're to play with that a little bit this morning. So we're going to call this kind of a bonus section, if you will, of Romans. After those first three verses, we're going to look at the bonus. So I'm going to ask that you pray with me. And uh, we're also going to pray for someone who's getting a little bit of medical attention right now. So let's just take time to pray. Lord, you know what we need to hear You know how we need your word to shape us. And so, Lord, as the same way that you start to heal and make us whole and develop us, we pray that you also be with the person who needs attention right now. That all would go according to your will and that comfort and strength would come. Now, we pray your blessings upon us, that you guide us through your word, through your spirit. In your ever-present grace, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're going to read here, beginning at the ninth verse to the 21st verse. And the challenge I have for you is to try and remember it all. I wish you luck. Here we are, beginning at the ninth verse. Let love Be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now I have a question for you. Was that on the screen, the first part? No? All right, so you really had a challenge this morning, huh? Who can repeat it back by memory? Here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna ask uh, the person on slides to stay awake as best as possible, all right? And we're gonna work our way through it. So even if you feel like you didn't catch it and there were those of you who were scrambling quickly to find a Bible, that's great, that's wonderful but we're going to work our way through this passage. And we're going to start with that opening phrase, let love be genuine. In all honesty, for these verses 9 through 21, scholars are always debating what to do with this section. They have trouble making sense of it. But most, if not all, agree that let love be genuine can best be summarized as kind of a thesis statement or a, a statement that encapsulate everything that is to follow that if you forgot everything else this statement would help you through let love be genuine is what paul says as Paul thinks about us becoming a living sacrifice, responding to God's mercy, to God's grace, as, God think, as Paul thinks about our, our minds being changed and, and the way we think, think and see God's will, Paul gives us a, an opening directive for everything else in which he says, let love be genuine, authentic. That's the... Word that the present generation that we live among, that's the powerful word of this generation. They want things to be authentic. They want people to be authentic. They want realities and experiences to be authentic. They don't want any of the pie in the sky. They don't want us to tell them what things should be. They want to talk about how things really are and how people really are. In many ways, Paul could have been writing for this present generation just as much as he was writing in that time frame because this generation is rejecting what we and the previous generations have to share. They are rejecting the facades that they see us living in, the masks we put on, all the things we project as they should be, and they are rejecting that because they are living amidst the brokenness while we're claiming a different reality. And so this generation, the key word for them is authenticity. They appreciate someone who's authentic, is real, is genuine. Their desire is for truth. What really is and what really works. They're able to sniff out all the different snake oil of life. They've been given too many promises that never held. And Paul is writing to a similar time, a time in which everything is thrown up, and, and these people worship this God, and these people worship this God, and these people worship all these gods, and, and all these different communities are mixed together, and meanwhile, there's an empire that's trying to run it all, and, and ironically, they call it the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, and the Peace of Rome is with an iron fist. There's no peace. So Paul writes, let love be genuine. And that reflects all the way back to God, that God truly loves us and has demonstrated that by giving his son in our place. Paul says everything short of that is not true. Let love be genuine. You know that word genuine in the Greek is fascinating to me. It's fascinating because what it really says is, don't let love be hypocritical. It's anti-hypocritical is really the word. And what's going on there is you and I have an understanding of what hypocrite is, but hypocrite or hypocritical comes from this word of hypocrite, which was originally the word used for actors in a play. That someone would put on a face or a facade and pretend to be someone else. That's what an actor is. That's what we understand. Someone is acting. But that was the original word. They put on a mask and pretended to be someone else. And that's from where we get the word hypocrite. And Paul is playing on this word. Don't let love be something that's just played out. Love isn't something to be play-acted. Love isn't something where you do what's right all the time, but then in the, when someone peels back the curtain, they see, "Oh, that's not the way it really is." Now Paul is saying, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to let love be genuine, authentic, not hypocritical, not a mask, not full of a facade. We need to get to a place as a church in which people outside look in and see that love is here as opposed to so many people. If you read statistics and all the other stuff in this country, people don't look to the church for love. They look to the church as a place of judgment. So Paul begins with a kind of thesis statement that says, let love be genuine, authentic real. Honestly, I debated cutting worship short and just letting that sit because it's enough for us to chew on. But I'm a preacher and I don't know when to shut up. What follows is a whole string of directions that Paul gives They're not suggestions, they're directives. They're not go do this, like maybe, they're go do this. And the problem that scholars and others have had with this passage as it goes forward is how do you link it all together? What makes sense of it? There's a few times this happens in the scriptures where it seems like Paul or others just kind of drop into kind of a laundry list of what it looks like. And that is sufficient. There's nothing wrong with that. But what if, what if Paul really had something in mind as all these things linked together? What if all these what seem to be disparate statements of what we should do actually have some kind of linking and, and really are part of something, that there are a bunch of small pictures that make a greater picture in Paul's mind. What if? I'm going to try an experiment. I need your help. Uh, some of us are letter people. Some of us are number people. For those of you who are letter people, you feel free to just tune out for a few moments. For those of you who are number people, I know you've lived for this moment, right? All right, I need someone to uh, remember the number 3 million. Someone give me a hand. Just throw up your hand and say, you'll remember the number 3 million. Please, thank you, 3 million. I need another person to remember the number 100,000. 100,000, come on, don't be shy. Thank you, 100,000. Okay, I got one back there. All right, so I'll give you the next number, 50,000, okay? All right, now I need someone to remember the number 10,000. 10,000, way up there, okay? you You remember that, right? Don't forget, okay, so we got those, um, let's see. I need someone to remember the number 500. Who wants to remember the number? You've got 500, okay. Uh, one more person now to remember the number 90? 90. 90, please? All right, 90, thank you. And the last one, we're done after this number. This one's a real easy number, the number two. This is, this is a simple number. Who can remember the number two? All right, there you go, two. Okay, good. So we have a long number, right? What is that number? It's the first person was three, three million. How many hundred thousand? Hundred thousand. How many, how many ten thousands? Fifty. And then after that is what? It should have been a thousand, not ten thousand. I'm sorry. All right, and then how many hundreds? Okay, 500, good. How many tens? 90. And how many ones? Two. So 3,151,592. The pastor has just lost his mind. Why in the world did he just do that? Right? move the decimal point, and you get 592. Five, which is what? Pi. The mathematical number pi. All we did is move the decimal point, and suddenly that big number makes sense. And then others are still saying, well, yeah, but I never understood what pi was. Pi is the diameter that is the length across the whole circle. The number of times that length wraps around the circle, it goes around the circle three times 0.1415926, on it goes. So now you have an understanding of random numbers. So they come together, they make sense, and they have a purpose. What if Paul had a purpose in all of these different statements? What if in his mind they actually make sense? Now let's, I don't have the answer, but I have a suggestion. As he says to let love be genuine, what if in his mind as he's writing or as he's dictating it, it's being written, what if as his mind goes through saying, okay, wait, how do they become a living sacrifice? How do they live this out? How do they change their thinking? What does that living in God's will look like? And he starts to think back over, what if he starts to look back over his own life? Have you ever sat with someone you know really well and you know their life story and you listen to them give advice to someone else and as they do so you know where that advice is coming from as they say the statement you know the backdrop from which they are speaking and you think oh if you only knew the depth from which that person is now saying what they're saying what if we looked at Paul's statements through the lens of Paul's life. What if we looked at it and said, let love be genuine, and he says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Well, that's great advice. We all know that we should stay away from what's evil and, and grab hold of what's good. I mean, we're changed teaching our children that all the while. Stay away from bad, go forward to good. I mean, I grew up with uh, 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 "Patch the Ponies concerning strangers. Nay, nay, stay away was the slogan. Stay away from bad. Seek after the good. That makes sense. We understand that. But what about in Paul's life? As he encountered the love of Jesus Christ, as he encountered God's grace when he was running contrary to God actually against God even though he thought he was working for God as he had to come to terms with all that as he was blinded as he suddenly was healed and the blindness was lifted from his eyes and he was given new life in Jesus Christ he then found himself a man without a country he couldn't go back to the Jews from which he came because he was supposed to be about persecuting the church. And he couldn't go to the church because the church didn't trust him, thought he was just pulling a fast one so he could figure out who they were so he could persecute them. No one would accept him. He was being rejected on all fronts. He eventually had to flee to his hometown of Tarsus how easy it would have been for him to be cynical and sarcastic and downcast. How easy it would have been for him to absorb the evil of life because evil and life had kicked him in the teeth. Even though God had reached down through Jesus Christ and claimed him as his own, even though he could claim that great joy and mercy, he, life stunk. How much more for him to say to us? Abhor what is evil. Stay away from that. But rather hold fast to what is good. In the midst of all your struggles and strain, hold fast to what is good. We all know what to stay away from. But we also know little children don't grow up desiring, saying to you when they grow up, they want to be a crook or a thief or a murderer no we're, we're tempted and we're lured and we're, we're challenged to think oh it's okay and Paul's saying no look when life gives you hard circumstances keep away and the best way to keep away like any teacher knows is to when you want to move a student away from one thing into another thing you redirect them You give them something to go to rather than telling them to stay away. You you say, stay away, but you move them to. He says, hold fast to what is good. But Paul's life didn't end there in being exiled to Tarsus. That's not where Paul's life ended. And you can just see him in his mind's eye or maybe some other circumstance penning this and putting it together and saying, you know what? I didn't stay in Tarsus. Eventually God came calling and the person of Barnabas, that encourager, came calling and, and he brought me back to Antioch, this place that Christians had fled to from persecution and the church started to form in an Antioch. People who weren't even Jews had come to believe that Jesus was the Christ. And Barnabas, upon investigating the situation, realized we need a teacher. And so he travels hundreds of miles and he goes and he gets Paul and he brings him back to teach. And in Antioch, the church expands and grows, but more importantly, it develops deep in the faith. And so Paul, in writing to the church in Rome and in writing to us, when he says, let love be genuine, stay away from what's evil and cling to what is good, he says, love one another with a brotherly affection. It's very easy to think of Paul thinking about his fellow colleagues in the faith who were teaching alongside of him, teaching these new people in the faith and helping them grow up in the faith. They were there doing this for over a year. It's easy for him to think of this, this absolute love for one another. Those who've been on a mission trip know what it's like to be in camaraderie on the same mission working together. And now you're not thinking about all your other claims. You're thinking about the mission and how you can love one another and strengthen one another. Paul writes, outdo one another in showing honor. Paul worked alongside of Barnabas and Menaeus and Lucius. He worked alongside of someone who used to be in King Herod's court, all these different layers and levels, and they all are loving one another strengthening one another in the Lord. They're lifting one another up. I love this. Outdo one another in showing honor. If you want competition in life, if competition is part of your lifeblood, make it part of your, your, your vision to, to help and encourage and strengthen others, to lift others up to do it more than anybody else around you? How much will the church be built up? Paul is just envisioning, I suspect, through his own life experience, what has flowed. He's, he's realizing, look, life was hard, but I wasn't left in that place. I was brought out eventually, and I was put in a place of teaching and and mutual love and encouragement of one another, and we no longer held on to our different places. We, we instead lifted each other up. And as he goes forward, he says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Well, I can't help but wonder... I can't help but read that in that spirit of Antioch. And again, this is just a suggestion. I don't know this to be true. But so many of us write out of our own experience. We write out of what we have learned and grown. How much more is Paul possibly doing the same? How much is it possible that Paul is saying, hey, look, you know, I remember all that teaching, but we didn't stop there in Antioch. At one point, the Holy Spirit came amongst us and said, set Paul and Barnabas, or Paul and Barnabas aside for me, and they're going to be sent off in mission. And Paul and Barnabas agreed to do that, and they actually take along another person named John Mark with them. They would picked John Mark up on one of their trips to Jerusalem when they were ministering to the people in Jerusalem, and now they're going to take John Mark as part of their team on this mission trip. And as they get into this mission trip, first, second stop, suddenly John Mark bails on them. Isn't it easy to think Paul is writing in his mind, outdo one another and showing honor, and wow, it was great, that was an incredible experience at Antioch, and then we were sent into mission, and oh yeah, that's that moment. You know, the truth of it is, for all of us, we can, we can start out strong, we can be excited, we can be running as fast as we can, and then we can realize, this is hard. You know, um, I was given the gift to be able to run, but the problem is, I wasn't given the gift to liking it. I don't like running, and when I run, I can run fast, and I can run far, but I don't like it, and I really don't like it when I hit that wall. You know what I'm talking about? Some people like that wall. I hate the wall. I'd rather the wall be set aside. I want running to be easy, and Paul is remembering, no doubt, probably this idea that, that, John Mark was all excited for the ride and good to go, and then he just kind of bailed on them. And he says, don't be slothful in your zeal, in your, in your fervency. Don't just kind of slow down and give up and say, oh, this is too much. But rather be fervent in spirit. Keep at it. Keep at your Faith. Faith is not audience participation. Faith is never us sitting by on the sidelines. In our worship experience, sometimes people talk about uh, those who are producing the worship up front and those who are sitting and, and experiencing the worship. That's not worship. The truth of the matter is we are all the participators of worship. The one who's sitting and experiencing the worship is God. All of us at all times are working before God. And Paul calls us not to be slothful in that work, but to be fervent in it, to keep at it, to keep pushing. And then he says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Honestly, these three statements could be a sermon in their own. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation or affliction, and be constant in prayer. You know, after John Mark abandoned them, and Barnabas and Paul later have a whole debate and split over that issue, by the way, on the second missionary trips, it has so imprinted in Paul's mind. But as they went on from there in this first missionary trip... They went on, and not everybody received the message well. Not everybody wanted to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul found himself being stoned in Lystra. Stoned. That is where they they set you up in a space, and everybody gets rocks, and they throw it at you, and their intent isn't to see, you know, who can miss you. Their intent is to hit you, and their intent is to kill you. And that's what Paul could reflect on. That that missionary trip wasn't easy, it was hard. And yet he says, rejoice in hope. What draws us out, what, what draws us forward to live in Christ is the hope that we have. That, that God has already won. God's victory is already claimed through Jesus Christ. His power to conquer sin is already established, and we have already been claimed as his own. That game is over. It is done. And Paul says we need to remember that we are his, that we are always his, we will always be his, that no one can take us away from that. We should always be rejoicing and living in that hope, living in that reality. No one can take that away. But Paul doesn't say that as pie in the sky. He knows reality is still there. Remember, he remembered that when he was, before he came back to Antioch. And he knows it in his own experiences. When he was stoned... You can think later in a second missionary trip when he was in Philippi with the Philippians, and they whipped him to the point of almost dying and then threw him into jail. And Paul and Silas were there. Still, what were they doing? They were being patient in the midst of their affliction, patient in the midst of their tribulations and trials. And there they were at midnight, still praying to God, singing psalms and hymns and praying to God, being constant in prayer. Is it too hard to imagine that Paul isn't necessarily just throwing out a bunch of slogans of what to do, but that we could actually be possibly going through his own recollections as he's writing, what does it look like to present ourselves as a living sacrifice? What does it look like to allow God to transform us and change who we are? Rejoice in the hope, be patient in the affliction and tribulations, and be constant in prayer. And as he thinks about that, oh my goodness, as he thinks about that experience in Philippi where he was whipped and put in jail, and he then thinks about what happened there. Not only how he was eventually freed, and there was an earthquake, and freed, and the jailer himself came to believe, and his household came to believe, even as he had to leave the town, a church was planted there. And that church, that church where he was so wickedly oppressed and rejected, that church grew up to be a church that supported other churches. Churches out of their great sorrow. And while they were still being persecuted, they were sending money to other churches. And so why is it a surprise that Paul writes, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality? Is it possible? Is it possible that Paul is recollecting his own journey and seeing what it is to follow Christ and that when you do others start to get the message that it's not about us as individuals. It's about us as the church of Jesus Christ. And it's about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Such that we're contributing and caring for others, not just ourselves, that were concerned about our brothers and sisters down the street, the other churches around us in our neighborhood, that were ch- concerned about the missionaries that are both in the states and outside of the United States, that we're concerned and want to play a part and support and encourage to the best that we can. It's easy to read through this and start to see that Paul is speaking probably out of his own experience. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Is that not what he was doing? Going from community to community, knowing that each time his life was at stake, and, and instead of, of reviling and cursing them, bringing them a blessing. Paul is grown up in the faith of following God. He was a Pharisee. He knew that the people of Abraham were meant to be a blessing to the larger world. He knew that their underlying worth and value was given by God but so that they could be a light to shine out to the rest of the world. And how much that now has been transformed by the person of Jesus Christ that God has sent his son into the world. And now that we are to reflect the love of Jesus Christ we are to be a blessing to others why? so that they may be blessed our job is not to be out there cursing or giving just as the world gives we're out there to give blessings such was the thought pattern of Paul in each place that he went and every place he went he he went and he, he didn't just seek out the best and the brightest in the towns and the cities no he went to those who were struggling just as our Lord did he went to the hurting, the broken. And so he writes, rejoice with those who rejoice, but weep with those who weep. In other words, enter into the lives of people. Don't just give them a packaged thing about faith. Don't just hand them a track. Enter into their lives. Rejoice when they're rejoicing. Weep when they weep. Share life with them. Live in harmony with them. That doesn't mean just get along with everybody. That doesn't mean learn how to live in the culture. That means learn how to bring the tune that you've been given of the grace of Jesus Christ and learn how to weave that tune into the culture's tune so that it becomes infected with the goodness of Jesus Christ. He reminds them, don't ever be haughty. Don't ever look upon them as if You have something more, or I have something more, or I'm greater because I'm in Christ. Not at all, but rather the best cure for that is associate with the lowly. The best cure is to go and live amongst those everybody else has rejected. That'll humble us pretty quick. How many times when we spend time with someone whose life is broken, we realize suddenly, in as many ways we could have judged them and said, well, if you didn't do this or didn't do that, you suddenly realize there's still a person there, someone who's loved by God just as much as God loves us. Paul is writing this string of of directions, not without purpose or connection, but they all make sense in his mind because they are his very reality as he follows Jesus Christ. Never be wise in your own sight. All of this is on God. He's the one who directs and gives us discernment, and his spirit is the one who guides us, not our own wisdom, not our own gifts. God gives those. We aren't to be wise in our own eyes. Goodness. Yet in the world, oh my goodness, in the life that we experience, we get hit over and over again. And yet Paul says, don't repay evil for evil. And now he draws upon an Old Testament passage. He draws upon the Psalms and the idea that, look at, let vengeance be God's. It's not for us to play that part. We're supposed to be loving and encouraging. The judgments, those are left to God. But instead, those who are difficult with you, feed them. Help them when they thirst. Let them be surprised by the love. And he comes back and he circles all the way back around. He says, do not be overcome by evil. In other words, don't let the world take you in. Don't let the evil of the world win out. And how can you do that? By just fighting against it? No. The only way to overcome the evil of the world is to live in the good of Jesus Christ. Overcome the evil with good overcome the struggle and the strain, the enemy with good. I don't know. I, I don't think this is just a series of sayings and directives that Paul throws in like some kind of potpourri at the end or some kind of a, a stew at the end of the day, and you figure it out. I think that Paul probably wrote uh, the very depths of his experience out of the very heart of what he's found the gospel to be. And so that when he calls upon us to to set ourselves apart as living sacrifices, I think Paul does the best he can by laying out what he's experienced and seen through the Holy Spirit. And he says, it looks like this. And so, if you need to, this week, go home, pick one of them out to try and work on, or maybe just work on the larger picture of what it all represents, or recognize that we are called to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, to discern the will of God, or to think differently, allow our minds to be renewed, and to live out now trusting as Paul put it in that one place, I love it. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. And be constant in prayer. And may all this be surrounded by the love of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have given us so much to think about. We can't even remember all the numbers to pi. And yet here you've called upon us to get a better sense of your vision for what it is to be the church, what it is to be followers of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to embrace this vision. Help us to be stirred, to be renewed, to be changed to follow you deeper and further. Guide us, almighty God, through your Spirit's leading. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. And as the song just reminds us, that we take everything to our God in prayer. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be yours this day and forevermore. Amen.